So this is an opportunity to um, exchange <clears throat> any uh, problems or concerns or questions or whatever you'd like to about your practice uh, in your daily life on the cushion or whatever ways that you would like to um, pose the question. And if you'd like to dialogue around those questions, that's fine. Or if you'd just like to ask the question and anything at all. Uh, so I just open it up. And if you don't mind, because I'm trying to record this, although <clears throat> depending upon uh, the quality of the answers, we may <laughs> <laughs> it may not get up into the web. <laughs> but in any case, uh, if you be concise about your question so that I can repeat it for the, uh, for the tape. Yes. Suddenly I've been having a hard time staying awake while during meditation. I keep falling asleep. This is, didn't happen uh, as of a month ago. Right. So the, the question is that he's having a hard time staying awake recently as of a month ago. He wasn't having that kind of difficulty. Um, my obvious question is, has there been any uh, anything? unusual situation that has happened in the last month emotionally impact you? Hmm? Has there been a waning of your intentionality in meditation? Right. Are you sort of shooting yourself into the meditation? That means uh, like I should do it. It's not really coming from any sense of com compelling interest in it. It's coming from like this is something that's good for me. It's like taking cod liver oil. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 So he's trying to get back to. At the beginning, it was very interesting. Yes, it is in the beginning. <laughs> and then it gets routine. Yeah. Right, because uh, your, your, um, what you've seen and the, the repetition of what you've seen, and it also gets more difficult as the practice uh, um, settles a little. You begin to see not necessarily the excitement of seeing something new or a different perspective of yourself, but the difficulty of what you've been carrying with yourself for such a long period of time. And at that point, there can be um, a radical shift of interest, as you might think, uh, as you uh, confront the more difficult areas of yourself, or just it's not holding the excitement. And you begin to see that what you, what we often are um, addicted to are the, the periods of where something holds an exciting quality, like a romance. <clears throat> when you first get involved, that sense of newness and getting to know the person. And uh, then when you have to deal with their issues, which inevitably you have to do, and the rose color enamoration wears off and you're left with the person, uh, you can do a, one of two things. You can move on to a new relationship, which many people do, or you can... Um, really mature in your understanding of what this relationship to the meditation is about. Because it never was about keeping you excited. 
right? Now, the other thing that happens early on in the meditation that's very difficult uh, <clears throat> is that uh, you're not seeing very much, really. Nothing uh, insightful is happening because you're, the mind is being trained just with the ability um, to hold its attention on something. And that takes a good deal of time. It's not, it can't be bypassed and it can't be shortened. You know, it's, it, it has a kind of discipline approach to it. Uh, it's sort of like sharpening a blade so that it can cut. Uh, meanwhile, you're caught up in many of the hindrances uh, and uh, don't have the ability to see the nuances of how we're engendering those hindrances. Uh, we just feel like we're caught up. We feel like our practice isn't working. We feel like it's routine. Where is this thing all supposed to go? I'm not seeing anything that the books say that I should be seeing. And so we can talk ourselves into discouragement, into despair, where we can talk ourselves into self-doubting that we think we just aren't up to the task of being able to do this. Uh, and this is really um, a very hard time, probably the hardest time in your entire practice, including those moments of terror within your practice. Because at this point, we, the maturity of mind isn't sufficient to be able to deal with the difficulties or even to know that those difficulties do not necessarily have to be taken personally. And so they are taken personally because that's the way we've always taken ourselves. And so there's enormous uh, inward tension when you're just running on what somebody has told you or what you've read in a book. And it feels like uh, the practice itself just isn't bearing fruit. <clears throat> so um, a, a, a couple of things. If you have the opportunity to do a residential retreat, they could be very helpful in spiraling you out of that kind of downward turn. And you'll find that uh, a residential retreat can really give you motivation and give you new insight and compelling issues for why to continue. And it can also um, deepen your samadhi, your ability to focus and hold your mind steady, which can be very, very helpful. And it can give you a very deep way of looking impersonally at the mind in a very short period of time. So I suggest that, and usually people say, well, am I ready for that? And I don't ever... Uh, answer that question. I say, D does your heart leap towards it? If your heart says, yeah, I'd like to try that, then that's good enough. Don't let your mind then come back in and say, I don't think I'm ready for it. That's just mental doubting. Let Just feel whether you, oh, I'd like to try that, and then do it. Don't second-guess yourself. The other thing you can do is to, and I know this is uh, difficult, uh, but uh, is to uh, practice uh, twice a day if you have the opportunity, two 45-minute sittings, and to um, really bring forth what I call the intentionality of the practice throughout the day so that you're calling on the practice, calling on the strength of the practice to move through those sittings into your life. And we, there are a number of ways to do that. One of the best ways is to pause in when you find yourself... Um, a, a busy, when you find yourself too uh, mentally uh, energized, uh, running ahead of yourself. Discipline, a pause, 
of 30 seconds or, or, or so, regardless. So, you, so what you do is prioritizing. You're standing up to busyness and you're saying, you know, the compelling issue that keeps me busy is secondary to my sanity of mind. And the pause induces a sanity of mind. I'm, I don't care if I'm late for this, a very, very important poem, appointment. Sanity is more important. I'm taking 30 seconds. And you sit there. And you really allow yourself not to think ahead into that next frame of reference. Which is, re- which is one of the most um, detrimental aspects of life in an urban dwelling compared to a monastic or retreat center. We think the issues of our life are so important and yet when we compare those issues to the moment of death, we say how important was that meaning, how important was that meeting, that appointment, that task compared to the pause of sanity. And you really get a deep sense of reflective Understanding of how what we do to ourselves and we give our lives away. What we think is meaningful momentarily or in this particular month or year really does not bear up when you look at it long term, no matter what we're doing. And so that reprioritizing, that willingness to claim reference back to sanity, that willingness to not step out of the practice merely because it's because it's becoming difficult, because if you happen to have a tendency or conditioning towards aversive, uncomfortable settings, so if something becomes uncomfortable, you leave it, which many of us do, um, then when the practice becomes difficult, you'll leave that. It's just another relationship that didn't pan out for you, you see? So it really requires a deeper inward intentionality in your life. And so one of the other things I really strongly suggest is before you get out of bed every morning, and when you look at the scope of your activity for that day, uh, in the pause of the of the alarm, <clears throat> reset your intention. What is this day going to be about for me? What is this? When I get out of bed, what is what is life? How? What's the moment of my getting out of bed? How how am I going to organize my living so that it means something to me, in the deepest sense of that? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, refresh yourself and don't expect too much from the practice too quickly. It takes time. And when it starts, it, it's a geometric, not arithmetic. As every, um, when it starts working, when the ball starts rolling downhill and collects more and more snow, and the snow starts and then adds on to the amount that it's, it's, it becomes, at some point, the momentum is such that you can't call it back up the hill. But when it's just a little teeny, you know, you can. And so it's it's at that moment that it's most delicate and needs the most support from all of us. That's why we meet as a Sangha. That's why we encourage, we have regular events throughout for people to come to. It's not a one-time and we're done deal. It's a lifetime relationship. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes.
grief. Sure, I, I'd be happy to. An inexplicable death. Her friend, a long-standing elder, someone who she's admired and thought was immortal. And I don't say that in any any way other than a deep honoring. And she's talking about grief and and uh, when the world is taken away. Uh, I'm going to talk about it. Um, from the deepest level to begin with, okay? And then we'll come back up to the human level. You see, it's very, it's, it's something that I, I live with and I think many people do. <clears throat> when you begin to d- deeply understand what the point of life is, it's not to give us anything. It's not for the pleasurable experiences or the comforts or the enthralling experiences or the enticing relationships it's not for uh, it doesn't that's not its point that's not what life is is manifesting for we lose ourselves within the delights of relationship in the delights of living uh, but the sobriety of what it's really about comes through loss when you see that the things that we have most counted on being there aren't and can't can't ever be sustained, then you sobering you bottom out to that kind of of heart longing for life to um, partner with me in a way that it can't, and so then uh, in that despair. Through that despair, one begins to see uh, how the whole mechanics of life are to awaken us and only to awaken us. And they can only get our attention through giving and then pulling back, through giving and then taking away. Uh, So that we think we have them and we think we have it and then it recedes and then it's gone, including our own life, including our own health, including our own our own youth. And many people uh, become very bitter from having it all and then having it all taken away. Uh, And those people um, will suffer enormously. But there are, there's a way to turn all of this so that it begins to uh, feed our spirit. So that it, so that we, what we're dependent upon uh, decreases. So that there's less resistance to losing uh, because we're not fighting the inevitable any longer. And then in that relaxed response, the uh, rift between ourselves and life heals. And there will be no more grief because we will then abide within the life rather than outside. The reason we grieve is because we try to sustain the unsustainable. 
Um, and so let every loss be a reflection just on the dynamics of what life is. At the moment of loss, there are, there's an opportunity to move uh, with life in a way that um, uh, it's disorienting. Uh, when we have everything we want, it's all lined up, we feel very safe within all of that. And uh, the safety, we can relax, it becomes very habitual. It's like our cat. The cat, if I change one thing in the morning, it gets very upset with me. You know, if I don't brush it on time, if I don't put it out on time, if I don't feed it on time. <clears throat> and I sometimes, I do it deliberately and it gets... <laughs> it just isn't, it isn't into the, the spirit of learning like that. <laughs> so it's just, okay, so I feed it on time if I can. But when things, when we count on something uh, and then something is taken away, there's a moment in which there's a, there's a hole, there's a, um, there's a uh, opening in life uh, in which what has been counted on is not there. And uh, that is extraordinarily upsetting to the mind, but it's where the heart abides. It's where the heart can, most be, can be most alive. Just a story. I was uh, with a woman who was dying uh, in an uh, inpatient unit with her children and family around, <clears throat> and she was talking us through her death. And uh, she was telling us, this is very rare, it's the only time it ever happened in all the years I was in hospice, but she was saying, um, I can no longer feel my body anymore. I can no longer uh, see I can no longer hear. Uh, and then she said, oh my God, I'm no longer in my body. And then she tried to say something and she died. So just to make a long story short, the, all of us were standing around the bed listening to her talk us through her death in amazement and wonder. And then she died. And we were all left in this moment of pure amazement, of pure, sac the sacred was in the room. And we were all there in the sacred and we were all there together and we were there for m several minutes by the bedside, just being absolutely still. Then one of the children, who was 13, started weeping because uh, her mother had died. Uh, and then the whole, then the whole, then we all went into action. All the hospice people and went through their roles and their comfort and all of that. And then the sacred left. Um, which is fair enough. But the point was that there was a moment there when the loss took us to something that was sacred. The having and the not having. You see that? Where? Did, what is that? What is that edge? What is that moment with that crest of wonder when you're... When you're, just, when you're had it and then you don't have it and you have nowhere to go in terms of blame? And that's, that's the, we love to blame the, the doctor who didn't see the lump, the, you know, all that. Because then we can, instead of being vulnerable on the crest, we can then be angry and get ourselves embodied in the anger. Because you can't get embodied in the vulnerability of the loss. 
You can only be exposed to the vulnerability of the loss, you see? So then, when the, so then when we miss that, which most of us do after loss, then we have to deal with the grief, the residue of the not having and the wanting life to be sustainable when it's not. And so, uh, and that's okay. But the way we deal with that is that we have to be very human about it. Let it tender us. Let it ten- don't, don't let it become a sour note on your life or, or that, but let it just tender you towards the loss of all things, towards the ephemeral quality of all things. So that when you're looking at the, the leaves, uh, fall from a tree or the changing patterns of weather or whatever you might be looking at and focusing and notice the, the, uh, the, uh, the sense of inevitability of loss, the inevitability of change. You see, so you're, you, you stay tender on that and you stay open, you stay alive to that. So the grief can take us to that as well as being alive to the sense of grief, being gentle with our sense of grief, being dig, dig, allowing it to be um, paying attention to it and being uh, um, dignified within it. And by that I don't mean proper, I just mean not to drive us into some kind of antic or anything, but just... Well, this is, notice how it's difficult. And you feel it, and you feel, and it takes you just, it opens life. It just shows you life. It just, it just shows you the raw quality of life if you look at it, you see. And you have to stay tender in that, and you have to stay, not distract yourself from that necessarily, as long as you can um, feel it and just honor it, not trying to, um, Shake yourself from it. or Because everybody who will be around you who feels that in you, all, not everybody, but many people will be very, uh, it's hard for other people and they'll want you to get over your grief so they don't have to be with you in your grief. And so they'll say, uh, you know, would you like to go to a movie or something like that rather than tell me the story of your friends and your relationship. So you have to be aware that most people aren't going to accompany you in grief. And you just walk it. And, you know, it feels like sometimes, uh, depending upon the how important that relationship was, it feels like your heart's going to die. It feels like it's going to just, it, it'll never bounce back. And, you ha- and you j- that's it right there, you see. And you don't move from that either. And it does bounce back. And life knows how to rebuild upon itself if we don't distract ourselves from the feeling. If you distract yourself from the feeling, then all sorts of crippling emotional responses occur that are side results of not having felt the grief. So just honoring honoring that love, because the grief is the sustainability of the love, that you loved him. You really cared about this man or this person. And then from time to time, just ask yourself, which is a, another very deep and profound thing to ask yourself. Is the love still there? And it is. It doesn't rely on the form, the person in form to be there in order for love to manifest. And the love was what was important in the relationship to begin with. And it's endured the loss of the form. And so the essence of the relationship is maintained. 
And even though this person, it sounds like they lived in a different part of the country, back where you grew up, and so you didn't see them very much. Once a year. And so you're not seeing them very much now. But everything seems to be different. And yet nothing is really different. Yeah, so this is when it's really coming up for you because it's at that time of year. But even if we're in very close relationship with somebody, if you look at the amount of time that you aren't really relating to the person, it's the vast majority of the day. And yet when the person goes, you're still not relating to the person in the vast majority of the day, but something just seems like, you see? It's just so interesting when you really... Yes, right, it's very different. Very different because the difference is the mental... It's not the love. The love is still there. It's the counting on the form to be consistent. Yeah. No. Right. You just you just thought he was always going to be there, which many of us do in important relationships. Right. So the other thing is is to uh, do some ritual. Put his picture out there. Light some incense. Some flowers. You can chant or do whatever you feel is appropriate. Do some readings, you know. Talk to the picture and tell him what he meant to you. Good, good. Good wake is always... Okay, okay good, good luck to you and you, you bet. Other questions or yes. Could we talk a little bit about worry and its uh, cousin concern? Whether there's any goodness in either one of them? Expressions of various. The question is uh, about worry and concern, and whether there's anything worth worrying about. <clears throat> We certainly do enough of it, don't we? We do an awful lot of it. And um, it's, it's part of the way I feel that in isolation, we feel that we can maintain emotional, um, emotional residue with something is through worry. Uh, you know, whether it's our daughter who's at college, whether it's, you know, our son who's... Um, hiking in the mountains or whether it's our spouse who's driving home in a rainstorm. Uh, what does worry give us? You see, that's the question I always ask. What does it give us? What, how does it, why is it maintained? Because we maintain it. Why is it maintained? What is it, what is it doing? And I don't think it's uh, too different than what the uh, dialogue we just had about grief and the sense that of my dependence on the world uh, to, to sustain itself. Uh, and uh, when there is a risk of that not happening, uh, then what, how I meet that risk is through worry. It's also, it's interesting, it's also a form, it's the way we think we maintain our caring about something. Somebody's in the hospital or being ill somewhere or something, Unless I'm worrying about them, in our mind, we have to we question whether we really care about the person. Well, that we're not dwelling on them all the time, thinking about them all the time. We think, well, maybe I don't care about them uh, to the extent that we should, whatever that means, and that 
then worry becomes the way we um, prove our affection for somebody. <clears throat> now, if that isn't the most insane thing, we really, I mean, you see, you, you laugh because you know it's insane. But does that stop you from worrying? You have to use your insanity, the knowledge of insanity, to take you to sanity. You have to say, wait a second here, look at this now. Do I care about this person? And that's a genuine question to ask. Is the affection genuine or has it been, is it inauthentic or is it authentic? I, that's where you start. You don't have to care about everybody. You're not going to possibly care about everybody. But is there, the, is there any um, sense of your needing to care? And when the caring isn't there, I mean, just, just for a minute to think here. Let's, let's look. What about this worry here? What is it doing for me? Is it healthy? Is it wise? Is it genuine? You ask yourself those questions and let us say that there is a genuine affection for somebody. Say your spouse, your daughter or something. Does the worry prove anything? Does it, does it do anything? Does it extend? It's an attempt to extend our control, isn't it? It's an attempt to um, extend our control into areas in which we have no power whatsoever. And because we have no power whatsoever, uh, the only power we do have is mentally trying to, to um, concern ourselves with events in which we don't have power. And we do that through worry. I think that's interesting to me. Why not just say, I, have no, I don't know if you're coming back. I hope you come back, but I don't know if you're coming back. And then that's that. And then they come back. Oh, great to see you. Or they hike Mount Hood or Mount, uh, yeah, what was Mount Hood, right. On a, you know, and then they don't come back. And then you deal with that. But I don't, I don't see a lot of sane usage for worry. I just don't. I think it's an overextension of our sense of power. It's plain God. And it's, it may be um, inauthentic. Let's look at the relationship and see if there's uh, genuine caring there. I mean, if you ever really think, I mean, those people, those hikers on, on Mount Hood, for instance, if you just hold their situation, you start caring about them. If you just read it very cursory, if you just read the news, like the poem says, as some distant person that doesn't mean anything, then you don't, you don't care. But if you, if you hold the news as two people, you see their picture perhaps, you start caring about these two people who are up on the hill. You care... You empathize with what they must be going through. You empathize with their, their pain. But you don't have to worry. It's not a worry. It's not a, you, you wish them well. You want them to be safe. But that's not worry. Worry is not, metta isn't worry. Love or affection isn't worry. 
See, that's, that's an extension. That's going too far. That's carrying the affection too far. It's moving into the manipulative. And uh, so then you say, no, not that, I'm not, that mind doesn't do that. I'm not going to do that. It doesn't stop you from caring. It just stops you from worrying, really. So on a... That's the only... That's all I can say. But... <laughs> Yes. This is sort of the same, only I'm looking at it when it's not really worrying. I got this email from my brother today, and I haven't heard from him in And um, he told me in no uncertain terms that this was the best time of year for me to take God into my life <laughs> because it would ensure me um, the rest of my life and eternity that I would be taken care of. He's right. <laughs> and I, was, I wasn't shocked because it's not the first time this happened. Only he used a couple of um, stories that were, I think, meant to be persuasive. Yeah, but you, uh, you, so uh, I just want to know the right action here. I don't want to break my separation, I mean, my, my connection with him. And so, I, I mean, I'm not worried about my future. The question is, she has a brother who's sent her uh, a highly charged um, uh, email regarding uh, his her her opportunity to take God now and be saved. See, when my brother, who is also a fundamental Christian, sends me something like that, which from time to time he does. You know, the part of me says, well, he's coming off on me again. But that doesn't last long. And I think, let's see, he's trying to get me into the sacred. Okay, was I in the sacred? Quite likely I wasn't. I was thinking about something. So let me come in and say, he's right. This moment is the most precious moment. And if there's going to be any salvation for the rest of my life, it's better begin now. I just reread it. I just put it into terms. <laughs> right? And he's absolutely correct. Right? Absolutely correct. I have no, Okay, thank you. Thank you. Why make a big thing out of it? Well, I don't want to. That's why. Then don't. Don't make a thing out of it. Don't. You don't have to. You don't. You don't have to do that. You just put it. In, reinterpret it. You reinterpret. And when he comes, when you get together, you don't have to make. I. I don't. You don't have to make a big issue out of it. You know. And so then, uh, some. He sent me an email. He says, you know. The reason we don't get together much anymore, and I was—I didn't—I'm very happy for him to come. He lives in Baltimore, so it's not like we're around the corner from each other. But uh, he says it's because you, you, my God's bigger than your God. Uh, that's okay. I don't, okay. So you don't—you don't. You don't I doesn't that doesn't bring anything out of me. It doesn't bring a defense out of me. He's he's needing whatever he needs from those kind of statements allows him his own security, which I would never try to take from him. He needs what he has or he wouldn't have what he has. He needs it exactly at that. And he's trying to do battle with an infidel. Me. Which is okay if he wants to, uh, it doesn't, none of that, if, unless I swallow it, which I never do, 
bothers me in the least. I don't want to make an enemy of him, for him, with him at all. And so if I respond, I try to respond in accordance with his language. As much as I can do without making my being inauthentic with what I know to be true. And through our dialogues, which have happened every once in a while, he'll he'll say something to me. I say, well, here's another way that here's another way of looking at that. You know, he'll it, it sometimes it gets into him, and he says, well, my, you know, he he's pauses. So I just. When, a, when someone becomes conscious, those that haven't become conscious are held by those who have. You don't, it's, it's important for every person who has become more conscious to hold people who haven't become that conscious. Not to make a problem out of their lack of attention to mindfulness. Because everybody has a perfect, there's a perfect timing in this thing. And one of the phases of that timing is fundamentalism, I'm afraid, or it seems to be. And that's a, an evolutionary point of reference where the only way they have to have a very personal relationship and a very autocratic relationship with their God in order for that God to be able to get in and for anything holy to be seen. Okay, so that's a, to me that's a very infantile approach to the sacred, but I also say, you know, there are, somebody who's three years old, you don't start teaching them calculus. You know, you're one and one. And that's not, I'm not being, uh, it's not a pejorative, I'm not trying to put the person down, or it's not being, not, it's not, it's like, okay, you know, this is just the evolution. You see it too. Someone, when you're, uh, when you're, when you're conscious, you see people who are unconscious, and most of their actions are attempts to make them secure and feel safe uh, so they have a God outside of them. Uh, and that's necessary for that evolution to m- move forth. So if you, like a three-year-old, you don't demand to be a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. You take them at three and you just patiently, they grow from three to four to five to six. I really look at life like that. You see, when you do, then there really isn't a lot of judgment in having a three-year-old for a brother who's actually older than you. I mean, do you judge three-year-olds? I don't judge three-year-olds. That's just what they're, they're three years old. It's not, really, it's not a judgment. And so, I just, you, you never have to make a problem out of anyone like that or like anything. And it, uh, it makes it an awful lot easier. Uh, there's a Dallas saying that says, um, uh, you know, if you're in a boat and another boat hits your boat, but there's no one in that boat to yell at, you don't yell. Right? So you empty your boat. And you just, whatever he, however he attacks, that it doesn't cause for any retaliation in attack. It doesn't upset me. It doesn't do anything. I'm there, you know, if he wants to. So if his God wants, if he wants his God to be bigger, fine, he's bigger. <laughs> now, how's that? <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't, okay.
Yes. Could you talk about the relationship between practice and addiction? Yes. Practice and addiction. Any particular type of addiction? As he's been following me around. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's see. Okay, so um, <clears throat> well, I mean, uh, you know, there are levels of addiction. <laughs> that one I don't really consider to be an addiction. <laughs> I'm not an alcoholic. See, I'm in. I'm in. in, uh, No, no. But no. Okay. So just addiction. Okay. um, Well, it's interesting. You know, uh, having grown up in a family that uh, had an alcoholic in my family, uh, I saw uh, very early in my teens that I could easily go that way. And uh, there were a number of occasions in which I did. And then, I don't know, there's just some sense of um, sanity. That's the only word that comes to mind that said, no, this isn't going to be a life that leads anywhere. So I stepped out of it very early, even before I was out of high school, into that kind of thing. But I felt the compelling, I felt the, the compelling um, Resonance, resonance of that. I still do. You know, you have a drink of um, anything, and you could. I can see that you could drink. I could drink a lot. I could. See, I can see that. I can feel it in myself. And you, whoa! You know, you see the power of some, something having something something over you. Now, I can't divorce the practice from this because. Um, I mean, when I have when I have that kind of relationship to something, I'm interested in it. Actually, I said, "What what is this? What is this compelling need here?" And I want to feel emotionally what tries to you know what what's trying to be satisfied in that, and what you know is it? Um, what is it? You see, it, uh, is it emotional? Uh, safety? Is it uh, st- stepping out of a kind of introverted? Way or is it just being more careless or um, less uh, sort of um, structured? I don't know. But you look at all that stuff and you go, "Whoa, this this is interesting." So what's keeping me from that level of ease, which is really what that all that represents? What's keeping me from this level of ease now? Why do I have to take something in order? To be at that state of of uh, unclarity in order to be at ease, you see what is it? What is it that's keeping me? So that's the way my mind goes. That's the way my practice works. But I do think there's physical, chemical um, urges in one that become so compelling. I mean, I don't want to ridicule or put these down at all, they, they are really compelling, compelling physical needs that people have for certain addictive qualities, uh, substances, in which for the uh, 
anyone that's not an, uh, almost a master in the practice, uh, hands off. You know, just don't play with temperance. Don't play with mod, mod, uh, moderation. Don't don't do it. It's playing with fire. Um, and just carry a quality of mindfulness, of awareness, whenever you're approaching around other people who are doing that same thing, drinking, let's say. And just a, a level of self-observation. Be very careful when uh, there's emotional neediness, like despondency or despair or depression, in which you're kind of giving up on the world and moving directly, almost chemically, towards something that will allow you to forget temporarily. That just That's when it's really the mindfulness needs to be just crisp. And uh, any... Uh, so the emotional neediness or just any a waning energetically of of uh, your of your sanity all of those can be extraordinarily helpful and if you find yourself like eating chocolate is something that you know is i mean it's it's hard to put that in the same line as an alcoholic or something but you know, if you got to be uh, uh, like uh, cigarette smoking, for instance, which is extraordinarily addicting, one of the things to do is to actually smoke um, the cigarette consciously. So you might, every time you smoke, you sit in the same place, if you can, at your home. And you take every bit of the, you puff it, you feel the smoke going into your lungs, what that feels like to the body, you blow it out. You see what effect it has on other people and on yourself as you blow it out. You just feel the whole quality of the cigarette, the taste of it, everything. So you really get a complete overview of the impact of the cigarette on your physical body, the, the sense of wanting, the neediness of it, and how I'm not able to hold that with any sort of attention without acting on it. Making it as conscious as you possibly can, smoking that cigarette from the first light up to the last puff, totally conscious, total awareness. I think if people did that for one or two or a few cigarettes, they would have a radically different shift in their intentionality to quit smoking. But they don't. They get caught in the conversation of it and the social and all of that. It used to be so acceptable that it was just part of the whole milieu of, of, of interacting. It's not like that anymore, thank goodness. But the really seeing what this substance that I'm playing with, be it chocolate or crack, what it's doing to me, what it's doing to my relationship, what it's doing to my life, what it's doing to my clarity, what is, what's it doing to what I hold most sacred in life besides just the level of enjoyment, comfort, ease or whatever it's doing to the mind in that moment which is just a mind state I also had a friend who said I can't say this because I haven't done the number of drugs that he did but he tried all the different drugs back in the 60s and he said he never did anything and he did them all 
He said that he, with any experiences that he had in all these drugs, he had the same experiences in meditation without the drugs. So the reason he gave up all those drugs was that he found, he found the resource, the authentic resource in his meditation. So anyone else? We have time for maybe one or two more. Yes. I tend to be really judgmental, and I know I'm judgmental, and I also note that the amount of judgmental that I hold is, and so I turn my judgment on me. Yeah. Yes, yes, I've got it. It's a very common theme. It's talking about judgment and uh, then judging the person who's judging and on and on it goes. It's not so helpful just to be mindful of judging. That's a, that's a start, but it's, it's not very, uh, it's not really where the disease lies. The disease lies in uh, the pain within us that causes the judgment at all. <clears throat> We judge because we are feeling diminished in ourselves in that moment of judgment. And what we're trying to do is to buoy ourselves up a little bit in relationship to the person we are judging by putting the other person down. And so um, if you go to the pain of how you feel about yourself in that moment, rather than into the, the who you're judging and why, or just the act of judging, because that's a symptom. You really get a sense of uh, how much this sense of unworthiness or inadequacy drives so much of our life in body, speech, and mind. And when you get interested in how much it drives your life, because it becomes <clears throat> so overwhelmingly obvious as you start finding, you go from the trunk of the tree down to the root system, and the root system's all into the tentacles of the roots, you begin to see how really pervasive this particular activity is and if you start following it following it back down you begin to see how much of our life is a cast from a self-disadvantage in terms of shame, guilt, judgment or just self-doubt that plagues us all. Uh, And it's throughout your spiritual life in physical life, uh, it could be the theme of choice to really start looking and and uh, and investigating, because it will stop you dead in your tracks spiritually. It'll stop every, everything. But at some point, uh, spirituality requires the end of self-doubt to move on, because self-doubt is the very uh, uh, primal state of being that many of us have, kind of the root uh, cause of of our personality, of our character, the root issue of our personality and all of its disguises and permutations of inadequacy and unworthiness and all that. And at some point, when you start questioning the sense of self itself, that will arise. And it will arise as a monarch. And unless we have dealt with it sufficiently to know its power, 
to know because it will undermine uh, our intentionality. We just I, I was dialoguing with somebody in Vancouver. This is a, a, two, a couple of weeks ago. And um, we were going very deeply together. And then he said, I can't do this. I'm not able to do this. I don't believe I can do this. I said, you don't believe you can do this. Is the only thing in this moment that's stopping you from doing it. The assumption that you cannot do this. He said, I can't help it. I can't do it. And I said, then what you need to do is to put your full attention and questioning that self-doubt. Because if you leave it alone, it, it feels like you can do a lot in your spiritual work and not ever have to deal with your mental neurosis. But inevitably, the mental neurosis is what ties you together as a person. It's what forms you as a person. It's where your belief and assumptions are most, are most emphatically held. And you have to test those. You have to question those. You have to investigate those. You have to prove those to be not true. I cannot do this. What, what, that's a, you, you can hear it, can't you? That's just like, that's it. That's it. Don't, you know, that's it. It's not that I don't want to do that. And I was looking to see if the I can't was really I don't want to, which would have been fine with me. He's just not ready. But he believed that he wasn't able to do it. Now, I don't believe that about anyone ever. Whoever, it doesn't matter who they are, I don't believe that. I believe that they're not ready, but I do not believe that they can't. And if we can dialogue sufficiently together so that I can show you that as an assumption in held in emptiness, then that cannot form to prevent the understanding of the sacred. But that's where it has to go. So judgment is an indication that most of us have of the power of the monarch. And this is just his, this is just his jester. This is his, the symptom, the very minimal symptomology of, of his power. But boy, when you start getting close to him, he raises up, or she, in all their majesty. I cannot do this. You see what, what you need here. It's not true, period. It's not true. Why isn't it true? Because when you look at the eye on which that assumption is based not being true, then all the assumptions on which it is based have to be false. And that can be seen very quickly, really. That can be seen very quickly. But if you hold the assumption true, then you have to hold the eye to be true. You can't do it that. You can't bypass the assumption and release the eye. Because the assumption holds the eye. But if you look at the eye, then the assumption cannot maintain. It's like uh, Teflon. can't stick. Although it keeps trying to, but it can't stick. Yes. It kind of goes along with the questions about worry, judgment, self-doubt. This one 
what good am I getting out of it? Um, and it's, you know, it, there's the mental awareness of this is not very useful. It's right. me trying to control things or right. Where I'm at right now in my process around it is saying, okay, here, you can sit right here. Good. But you're not making decisions. Good. Good. That's good, Suze. The question is about fear and, and the controlling aspect of fear. Ask your, that's beautiful. And ask yourself, when it arises, what would I do now if I weren't afraid? You see, give yourself another alternative. Say, see, give yourself another alternative. So that the only living reality isn't the one the fear is speaking. Which often is so consuming that you feel like you have no other, there's no other opportunity except to reverse your course. What would I do now if I weren't afraid? What would you do now if you weren't afraid in your life? Then, and this won't always be, you won't always be able on some of the more dramatic qualities of fear, you won't be able to do it, but on some of them you, it, it becomes obvious and there won't be sufficient fear to hold you in place. And then the action from the resolution of moving despite fear, not in reaction to fear, but despite it being there, will strengthen that the, the conviction that fear doesn't hold the truth. Because you'll see, you can do it. You can do, okay, I'm, I'm afraid of speaking in public. You get up and you still are afraid of speaking in public and you speak in public. And the next time you do it and the next time and the next time you have a lot of fear. And then at one point you get up and there may be a slight anxiety, but you just, that's okay. You just, you, despite that, you go ahead. Because each time you're weighing in on the sanity and the perceived reality of what fear is going to t- is telling you that everybody will laugh at you or whatever it is that we fear will happen when we speak in public doesn't occur. And you say, well, then you start stop believing in that mental fabricated lie, which fear is, because fear doesn't know what's going to happen. It just says it does. Just says it does. It says, I know what's going to happen. You get up, everybody's going to laugh at you. Well, I'm not going to get up if everybody's going to laugh at me. Therefore, I'll stay seated. You get up, nobody laughs at you. Maybe it doesn't know the whole story here. And so you start, even though it feels very, you know, compelling when you have uh, fear and anxiety and some of the more dramatic things, and sometimes you just need to be patient with it. Just be patient here. Let it have its day. I've told you the story. Some of you have heard of my song. So I'm only one person with only so many stories. So, so. Uh, I had a nightmare. And I, uh, I would go into uh, one of these like psycho houses, you know, up in the third story. And I, I this incredible cold, chill terror would enter me. And I'd run out of the house and I'd wake up you know, like profusely sweating. And it was a reoccurring nightmare. So I got into meditation and I was meditating for a while. I had that ne- reoccurring nightmare. It happened. 
went up into that. I can feel it as I I went up into that room, felt the cheer, the chill, uh, and uh, started to lunge for the uh, steps. And I said, I'm not leaving. I popped down on the floor in the dream. I said, bring it on. And it it disappeared. It just, that's it. And it never occurred again. I, I have that from time to time. Uh, Elle and I were watching some movie or something. I can't remember what it was, but where people were running from something like, you know, like a mummy or something, you know, one of those. <laughs> they walk so damn slow anyway, you could be. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't understand. But anyway, like Godzilla or something, right? And everybody's going, ah, like that. I just wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't run. It w- I just, I'm not going to live like this. Get, step on me. I'm w- w- if, you're w- if you're willing to die, if you're willing to die, and I mean it, if you're willing to die, then that doesn't have any, what does it have over you? I'm, I would rather die than live like that. I would rather die than live, wouldn't you, I, I mean, you will live like that. They try to get us to live like that with these red alerts and all that. Okay, so you're, you know, you. I'm not going to. That's it. So you, you, you see, at some point, there's a certain way that I'm not willing to live, and I'm not willing to live at the expense of my sanity, and or my integrity, what I know to be true. So, that's it. You're going to go to Iraq and fight. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Or put you in jail. Put me in jail. If you're willing to do whatever it is that they are going to tell you you have to do, if you don't do whatever it is they want you to do, then there's nothing they can do. And I, and fear has that. That's it. So your integrity becomes the most important quality in your heart. The most important quality, most important thing in your whole life, more important than anything, is your integrity. I'm not going to live like that. No. Put a gun to my head. You say it's easy for him to say, I'm telling you, I would not run. I know that. And I would not fight in Iraq. I know that. It's not just words. You feel it in your body. You feel it in your cells. That's the level of conviction. I want to thank everybody tonight.